This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 18th of November 2023. Hello, hello. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Thank you so much for joining us. We're coming up on today's programme, a bit of a literary theme this week, as we explore news and culture with Sean Bailey, who's news editor of The Bookseller. Then... I really wanted to look at what I call 21st century fire. We're living in the same world, but there are some noticeable changes. And and one of the more graphic and extreme changes is in how fire impacts our communities. We'll hear from Canadian writer John Valiant on his book Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world, which won this year's Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction this week. First, though, here's the news. Israel issued a fresh warning to Palestinians in the southern city of Khan Yunus to move out of the line of fire and closer to humanitarian aid, in the latest indication that it plans to attack Hamas in south Gaza after subduing the north. Israel has vowed to annihilate the Hamas militant group that controls the Gaza Strip after its October 7th rampage in which its fighters killed 1,200 Israelis and took 240 hostages. The United States, United Kingdom and Norway have condemned escalating violence and human rights abuses in Sudan, especially in the Darfur region, where another genocide is feared. Sudan has asked the United Nations to terminate the UN political mission in the country, saying its performance in helping the transitional government of Sudan was disappointing. And South Korea aims to ban eating dog meat and put an end to the controversy over the ancient custom amid growing awareness of animal rights. The government and ruling party will introduce a bill this year to enforce a ban. Authorities said that with expected bipartisan support, the bill should sail through Parliament. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio by Sean Bailey, who's news editor of The Bookseller. Good morning, first time on Monocle. Yes, yes, good morning. (laughs) Very, very happy to have you here. Sean, tell us more about The Bookseller. Yeah, so basically it's the trade magazine for the publishing and books industry. So we write about all the goings on in terms of what authors are up to, what kind of books are being acquired, book prizes, anything kind of on literature and publishing. Mm -hmm. And publishing it across other um, media as well in terms of sort of magazines or newspapers? Not so much, actually, but we are we do do a lot more on sort of audio books and e-books now, for instance. Um, But yeah, very much sort of within the space of traditional publishing into sort of book form Mm. yes and what's your role there so I'm the news editor so I cover sort of the daily goings-on within the industry um, and responding to I guess events as they're happening rather than our features team which do the very exciting things such as interviewing authors and reading more of the books Mm. I was very impressed when we first met which was only this (laughs) week actually sitting next to each other at a a prize dinner that by the end of the dinner you'd actually filed your copy I mean, I do get to do a little bit of uh, prep beforehand, shall we say. But um, yes, no, I was sitting there with my notes up on my phone, desperately adding things to the website. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what 
would you say is the general health of the publishing industry, uh, not just here in Britain, but globally? Pretty good, actually. I mean, I think definitely um, the COVID pandemic saw a resurgence in reading. You know, people really took to it. So the publishing industry has been doing very well. We're kind of seeing a little bit of a drop off from the highs of the COVID pandemic, but they're still much higher than 2019. So a very healthy state of things. I think even, you know, talking to my friends, everyone seems to be very involved in literature, really, you know, loving books at the moment, whether that's in your sort of more traditional printed form or audiobooks, which are really exploding at the moment. Um, on things like Spotify services. So, um, no, it seems to be in very good health. Mm. Of course, one thing that every avid reader is very aware of is the rogue apostrophe. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Uh, There's a great story this week, um, I think it was in the Times, about um, uh, apostrophes in street signs. Tell us more. Yes, so I think it was a village in Hampshire had basically been lobbying their council about... um, an apostrophe in the street sign had been removed because um, there were sort of concerns and issues that um, ambulances and such like were finding it quite difficult on their data systems if an apostrophe were there. Um, but obviously, you know, you have pedants and <laughs> they wanted to get it back and they um, successfully managed to in this instance. But it, it just seemed to be, it was a wonderful story. You know, people were citing Jane Austen in various council meetings and her use of punctuation at various times. And um, yes, it was just a, a fun little story that I spotted over the week. Weekend. <laughs> uh, so St Mary's Terrace now does have an apostrophe. It does, it's it. back. <laughs> uh, but there is another row which they're just refusing to get involved with. <laughs> yes, at the end it ends with uh, whether there should be a full stop after Saint in St Mary's Terrace. And um, I particularly like the line at the end where um, a lady who's been sort of campaigning for the apostrophe remarked that that's too controversial to get into. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Not doing that bit. Of course, th- that that side of, of literature, of publishing is very important. The, mm. the role of the sub-editor and the copy editor and just making sure that all of that stuff is absolutely right and no more is it nowhere is it more important than in glossy magazines now obviously here at monocle we're absolutely rigorous about fact checking but also when you look and and copy editing and uh, subbing um but when you look at fashion magazines for instance like vogue Mm. uh they're just as hot on that i mean it's very very important and i thought it was a it was a there was a great story actually in in the guardian this week uh, again one that you spotted and it was about Vogue Ukraine and how they've had to pivot during this time of war. Yeah, it was just really interesting about, I I think you kind of in your mind think that the sort of more frivolous thing, shall we say, of uh, not not that it necessarily is, but we think of that compared to war or fashion magazine, how important could that be? But it was a really interesting piece about how Vogue was continuing in Ukraine and how at the beginning of the war there was more of a focus on, you know, really... Uh, logistical things, you know, what do you do if your city's being bombed, but how over the past year or so they've managed to interview sort of heroes within Ukraine, still get back into the fashion element but it's just so interesting on how the magazine kept going when, you know, casually under bombardment, there's a phrase I think at the end where the editor's just like, oh, you know, it's not you know, it's just something that we're used to and that life really does just go on. Absolutely and I mean they do say that Vogue Ukraine has never been a magazine just about clothes Mm. and trends, they say, you know, we've always looked at wider culture, um, uh, and, and what they're doing right now is sharing people's stories, yeah. which I think is really, really important and finding a, a really a new tone for a, a wartime magazine. Definitely, exactly. And it's just, yeah, so interesting how 
um, in in times of difficulty, you you as you say, you know, strike this new tone. I mean, even we found um, covering the publishing industry, we've been speaking to a lot of um, Ukrainian publishers who are you know continuing to push books, continuing to try and sell rights to really show Ukraine's position on the global stage and their wonderful literary culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, staying with conflict, and um, sadly, there's all too much of it at the moment, uh, and 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 looking at the Middle East, uh, but but putting that into a publishing mm. context this time a kind of social media publishing huge row about anti-semitism and twitter tell us more yeah so i think there was a, a tweet that elon musk had responded to on twitter um, that i can't quite remember what exactly it said but it has obviously been accused of anti-semitism and after that a number of big brands have basically tried to or have in fact pulled their advertising from the platform um, as a sort of move against that and it, it's just interesting i guess also, not only obviously in the context of everything that's happening in the Middle East at the moment. But I guess Twitter's position, you know, there's been lots of controversy ever since Musk took over um, with brands moving away from it. But obviously this is, is quite an ext- uh, a bold action, obviously actually pulling advertising from mm. the platform. Because I think what we're seeing, and we, we explored this actually on The Globalist yesterday, we were talking to somebody from Bellingcat mm. and about how important it is to check your sources and what it is that you're actually retweeting. Do not mindlessly copy and paste or just retweet. And, 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 and that's a, a really, really big thing. Uh, there has been a copy and paste scandal, though, hasn't there? You covered this. Tell us more. Yes, yeah, so in recent weeks, I think, uh, so Rachel Reeves, who's the shadow chancellor, um, her book came out and there was a bit of a controversy when I think the FT was reviewing it and they found that a, a number of references in there were uh, lifted from Wikipedia, which is very much, you know, what naughty students are told not to do. Um, but it was just quite interesting in a follow-up piece in, in this weekend's FT that was kind of examining what does it mean to plagiarise and I just thought it was a really interesting debate where you know perhaps those where I think most of the examples of that were biographical details um and whilst it's obviously not very good practice, is it really so awful to have copied, you know, facts? I mean, she could have probably quite easily changed it with a, a tiny bit of checking. Um, but compared to, you know, borrowing ideas. And it, it was just a really interesting exploration of creativity, really, and how ultimately, you know, we, we don't exist in a vacuum. We respond to each other. And mm. um, I just thought it was a very interesting. Piece. Well, I mean, it is, it's, it's so tricky because you've got to, you know, say if you're doing news, mm. you have to go to a source for the facts. Yeah. You may then rewrite them, but but what does that mean about, you know, the originality of it? Yeah. You, you know, you can't make up facts. And it, it's got a great uh, the paragraph here saying copyright exists for a good reason, and it's not to maximise the income of anyone who owns the rights to an act of creation. It's to balance the incentive to create ideas against the right to enjoy or build on the ideas of others. And I think that that absolutely stands, but not perhaps when you're looking at, 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 at factual reporting. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about facts, because this week was the awarding of the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. Yeah. Now, this is a prize that's very close to my heart because I judged it last year and it was such an interesting process. Uh, let's leave aside the, 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 the kind of work involved of something <laughs> like 180 books in Gosh. six months. Uh, but anyway, there we were uh, on Thursday evening and serendipi- serendipitously uh, sitting next to each yes. other, which is where we got chatting. Uh, and um, we uh, were there for the prize. Now, on Meet the Writers this week, uh, I interview all six of the shortlist uh, holders, shortlist winners, whatever you want to call them. And 
I mean, each of them was absolutely fascinating. And I was trying to look at it in advance, not knowing what the result was, mm. thinking, well, who would I choose? And having a little bit of an insight into the brain of a, a, a Bailey Gifford judge. But I have to say that I think as every judging panel is unique, so are every set of circumstances. So, you know, perhaps if if the Middle Eastern conflict had blown up earlier, you might have seen one of the other shortlisters mm. last year who was writing about the Holocaust perhaps come higher up in the pecking. I mean, it's just so interesting. And so this year's winner was writing all about climate change. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about John Valiant's win? His book was uh, Fireweather. Yes, I mean, I think it's it's been very widely praised by our team. I think it, it's a lot of people spoken about how it reads like a thriller and obviously is very um, timely at the moment with a lot of the concerns about um, climate change. So I think a, a very timely winner. Also very interesting, of course, where we had a little bit of a, an eruption on Bailey Gifford over the summer in terms of um, controversy over their investments at the Edinburgh Book Festival. So ended up just have in our press conference before the winner was announced, there were some questions there because it was just quite interesting that obviously a climate change book had won and then Bailey Gifford obviously also spoke at the event to, to sort of make their position clear on things. So mm. it felt like quite a political um, award this year. But it it did. And I thought it was very interesting that Bailey Gifford was defending the fact mm. that 2% of their investments are in fossil fuel companies and they were saying, wouldn't you rather a transparent, uh, responsible investor was in charge of this? If we sold it, we don't know who it would go to. We are trying to help mm. them with the transition. And I thought that was reasonable enough. Yeah, it was a really interesting point to be made, of course. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we can try and see these things because it's quite black and white. And as you say, you know, it's it's interesting when there's a little bit more complexity of d- what divestment actually means. Yeah. So John Valiant is Canadian uh, and uh, his book Fireweather, a true story from a hotter world. He delves into the devastating wildfires that struck Fort McMurray in Alberta in May 2016 and very skillfully examines the, the conflicting priorities of the oil industry and climate science and the immense destruction caused by modern wildfires and the lasting impacts of those disasters on the lives of those who are affected. And I spoke to him about his, his book and I asked him originally what lit the spark, pun intended, for fire weather. Fort McMurray, Alberta is... 600 miles north of the U.S. border, and it's a, it's an anomaly in North America. It's a city of a, almost 100,000 temporary and permanent workers who are devoted solely to extracting bitumen from the earth. And bitumen is a tar-like substance that if you heat it up enough, you can turn it into something resembling petroleum. So this city is engaged in this task in the middle of the boreal forest, which is one of the most flammable landscapes in the Northern Hemisphere. And on May 3rd, 2016, the temperature, again, in Northern Alberta, this is almost in the subarctic, hit 33 Celsius, and the relative humidity dropped to 11%. And for perspective, 11% is a typical humidity for Death Valley in Southern California. So this combination of record-breaking temperatures record-breaking low humidity and a naturally flammable landscape resulted in an absolutely catastrophic fire that rolled into the city around lunchtime on May 3rd. And the um, heat coming off this fire into the city was about 500 Celsius. So that's hotter than Venus. And it superheated the neighborhoods to explosive temperatures so that when the fire arrived, they burnt to the ground at about five minutes per house. 
It was an event that, needless to say, firefighters were completely unprepared for and really had no way of of combating. And so you take that story and then you take us on a journey. Walk us through what your book is saying. Well, I really wanted to look at what I call 21st century fire. You know, we have changed our climate through the relentless burning of fossil fuels starting around the Industrial Revolution in Britain uh, around 1750. And we've burnt extraordinary amounts of coal, petroleum, and natural gas since then. And it has resulted in a, in a buildup of heat-trapping gases around our entire planet. And with that added heat comes conditions that enable fire to burn more broadly and more intensely than it ever has in human times. So what I wanted to follow was looking at how fire burns differently now. You know, most of us feel like we're we're living in the same world, but there are some noticeable changes. And, and one of the more graphic and extreme changes is in how fire impacts our communities. And we've seen that, you know, to a horrifying effect in Greece this summer, in Hawaii this summer, all across Canada, which had the worst fire season in its entire history. So I wanted to understand the dynamics of that, not just the chemical dynamics, fire is a chemical reaction, but the social dynamics, the political dynamics, and the historical dynamics. And it really comes back to our obsession with fire in all its forms, including petroleum-generated fire. So tell us more then about the oil industry and climate science and how they intertwine and what that means for the future of our planet. Well, right now, our global economy is about 80% driven by fossil fuels. It really is the sine qua non of how we live now. We're almost completely dependent on it. And we've understood for a surprisingly long time that burning fossil fuels generate CO2 and methane and can impact the climate. Scientists were actually speculating on this possibility back in the 1880s and 1890s. And by the 1950s, we understood CO2 and fossil fuel burning well enough to predict accurately the changes that it would impose on our atmosphere. So we've known really for three generations that what we're doing is going to endanger the planet and everything and everyone who lives on it. So I'm interested in the fact that knowing this, we charged ahead and fossil fuel companies in particular who wield tremendous influence, not just over our economies, but over our political systems and our financial systems, have worked very hard to bury that science and manipulate it and us in ways that encourage us to continue burning fossil fuels at a alarming rate that is having grievous and possibly irreversible results on the quality of our lives and the sustainability of our planetary systems. That's John Valiant, who has just won the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction with his book Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. Uh, and uh, if you want to hear more of that interview, and indeed if you want to meet the other people who were shortlisted for the prize, do listen to the most recent episode of Meet the Writers. It'll be coming up later today, actually, but you can just access it directly from wherever you get your podcasts or from our website. And you can hear my conversations with all of the brilliant Bailey Gifford Prize nominees. Uh, they were all 
absolutely fabulous. This is prize season, isn't it? I'm talking here to Sean Bailey, who is uh, uh, with the bookseller. Uh, and we met, in fact, at the, at the prize. Um, uh, I mean, Monday, for instance, sees the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comic literature. Now, I always love this prize, not just because it's sponsored by Bollinger. <laughs> I mean, it helps, doesn't it? It definitely helps. <laughs> it really does help. <laughs> Um, but it's a wonderful prize because, of course, it's it's all about, you know, comic writing. I think it was launched in 2000 and Howard Jacobson, wonderful Howard Jacobson. And again, an aside here, a reference back to Meet the Writers. You can hear several interviews I've done with him over the years there. I think he's won it twice, actually, so far. Um, he's a yeah, great, great comic writer. Uh, and uh, uh, last, last year, it was a slightly controversial decision, actually. It went to Percival Everett uh, for The Trees. Yeah. Yes, from a very small press as well. Um, I think Influx Press, which is tiny. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, every year I think it's always a bit of a surprise. You know, what what is... Because I think you, you think of it as quite a... Well, it's quite a harsh <laughs> novel that is about quite deep and awful subjects, but, you know, the dark humour within that. So yeah, uh, an interesting choice, definitely. Um, and also, of course, the winner gets a pig. Of course, yeah. And you get to name the pig, I think, as well, don't you? Who's <laughs> <laughs> normally called something to do with the, with the, with the book. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun prize. But Tuesday sees a shortlist of the Nero Prize. Yes, which is sort of the one that's come out in the wake of the Costas closing last year. So another coffee, coffee shop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the cosiness of, I guess, uh, having a cup of coffee with your favourite book. But uh, yeah, really lovely to see uh, that kind of prize coming back that really rewards children's fiction in particular, I think, is uh, something that we were kind of seeing a lot of children prize is closing so it's lovely to see that coming back yeah uh, and then I mean there is something every night this week if one wants <laughs> I'm to gonna go be to very it. worn out yeah because <laughs> <laughs> it's the Royal Society of Science book prize uh, what, what can you tell us about that uh, the main thing I remember is I think it's got the long uh, the youngest uh, shortlisted author ever he's only 28 um, and I think that was the main thing that stood out to me this year because uh, they made quite a big deal of that because I think you sometimes tend to think of these uh you know, science books as, you know, years of research. I mean, obviously, it has his lifetime. He's done a lot of work on it. Um, but that was something that stood out for me for this year. Yeah, so that's on Wednesday. And I can't remember where it is, but um, I think I think that's one I'm not going to be able yeah. to go to. It's at a nice location. I also can't remember. I've yeah. got it on my list. It's a busy week. <laughs> it's a very, very busy week. Uh, and, of course, there's the big one on Sunday. Uh, and that is the Booker Prize. Yep. Uh, so that was one last year by Shihan Ka- Ka- Karuna Talaka with The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. Um, and uh, let's just have a look at the shortlist for here. So um, I have not read all of them, um, but they are they're looking extremely uh, interesting. Um, and t- I mean, tell us what you think about yeah, I think it was, I mean, even the long listing this year, I think, came as a surprise to quite a lot of people. Um, some more unusual books, a lot of books that people thought were going to be on there were just not. Um, but, you know, a real uh, presence of Irish writing this year. We've got the three pools on the shortlist yes. as well. So, um, no, definitely a newsy one, an interesting one to see who gets crowned this year. Absolutely. And I think I will be uh, interviewing the winner on Monday, what? but I'm not quite sure when that will be broadcast. <laughs> but that's that's a fun one to look forward to. And, of course, always this wonderfully kind of glittering prize ceremony. And I think what's really interesting, actually, this year is that they've moved it to a Sunday evening, which indicates to me that it's going to be much more show busy because Sunday is the night, of course, that actors get off. Ah, 
yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, because obviously for me, I was a bit annoyed. I was like, that's not on my working day. I've got to go. <laughs> but, you know, of course, I'd always want to go to Booker's. So. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's going to be. And last year it was, was it was in the Shard and in, in, in those. It had that fantastic. Was it the Shard? Oh, the but Roundhouse. That, the Roundhouse yeah. with that fantastic view everywhere. Very it was just, nice. It, yeah. was, it was absolutely lovely. Uh, and then uh, I mentioned that, of course, the winner last year was Shaheen K- K- Karuna Talaka. I'm going to get that right. Again, he's an interview you can look up on Meet the Writers. But he's just been giving this incredible writing retreat course in Marrakesh. Um, so there's this wonderful group called uh, Silk Road Slippers, and they've been running this retreat in Marrakesh where writers, uh, uh, one kind of big writer comes and sits and teaches the sort of masterclass and you go for I think it's four or five days mm-hmm. sounds absolutely wonderful that one's just wrapped up but I believe they've got lots more uh, and again you can hear Alexandra Pringle who runs it talking about it uh, on on our website um Marrakesh, of course, a wonderful place to go and lose yourself and, and, and write. But one of the things that, that I think is so wonderful about the, the sort of book industry is the very international aspect mm-hmm. of it. This is an industry that, that, that spans the world and we're all equal. We're all talking to each other, which is, which is a great thing. And nowhere is that more uh, apparent, I think, than with literary festivals, yeah. because uh, what you're doing is setting up a literary festival in some far-flung location, but getting writers from all over the world and having a global conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. And as you say, you know, the different authors who come along, the agents speaking to each other, you know, not only, I mean, at the bookseller, we tend to focus on the um, sort of rights fairs more specifically. So Frankfurt, London, Bologna, um, but the literary festivals themselves, I think it's where, you know, literature really comes to life. People can have these wonderful discussions together um, and and realise, you know, the amount that everyone actually has in common, you know, the the sort of broad themes and topics of literature is so so wonderful for Mm. everyone to enjoy. And I'll just highlight one that's mm. coming up uh, in January I think it starts 24th or 25th of January is Hey Cartagena which is in Colombia. Now this is a brilliant festival. I've, I've done it twice before and, and in fact I am going uh, next year as well. Um, I'll be interviewing Tsutsi Jangarembwa who, uh, who is a Zimbabwean writer yeah as am I, so that'll be a lovely conversation and there'll be many others uh, on the list too. Um, but just such a wonderful thing to do and I've got to the point now where I don't go on holiday, I want to go to places <laughs> where I can actually have a conversation with somebody about books if I go there and yeah. I just think it's such a great way to plan a trip even if you've got nothing to do with the publishing industry, you're not a writer but you are a reader, plan your holidays around these fantastic literary events because there are so many of them all over the world. Yeah, and as you say, you know, in places big and small, it always amazes me that, you know, even somewhere really local to you will almost definitely have some sort of literary festival. So it's yeah. a really wonderful thing yeah. to be aware of. And in fact, it was at Hay in Wales uh, where I met Judith Carr, who is, of course, yes. the wonderful, wonderful children's writer uh, who, who died about five years ago. Um, and uh, she, people will know her from The Tiger Who Came to Tea. My favourite. <laughs> And also the Mog books about yeah. her cat. Uh, for me, the one that has the most resonance, uh, resonance is uh, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, yes, which yes. I think is just uh, probably my, my most, the most impactful book of my life. Uh, and uh, I met her first at Hay and we went on to develop a, a really lovely relationship. She became friends with my mother and my brother and it oh, became a, a, yeah. a lovely time. And so last week, we all gathered at the River Room in the Savoy to pay tribute to Judith in what would have been her 100th year (laughs) and it was just such a a lovely atmosphere to have all these people that loved this author who was loved by so many people sad news about another author um, who's died just a couple of days ago and that's A.S. Byatt tell us more 
Yeah, so we had the news yesterday from her publisher, Chatter and Windus, that she'd sadly passed away. Um, and yeah, really big news story, obviously, as a, a book winner herself, you know, sort of with that coming up. Um, but the, the thing I always actually... Uh, weirdly enjoy about these kind of stories is you hear from the editors and the agents about um, just sort of the wonderfully interesting lives that these authors have. I think um, her editor Clara Farmer had a really wonderful quote she gave us so about just sort of like the gossip and the tidbits that she used to have and it's just you really see what a life someone has had when you when you hear about um, those who work closest with them and how they got their inspiration and ideas. Yeah, absolutely and um, of course she was Margaret Drabble's sister but they famously fell out yes. uh, and, and didn't speak for, for, for years and years and I, I read a, a lovely quote from from Byatt the, the other day and I, I, I can't immediately put my finger on it but it was basically she was in a, a state of her life where she felt very very low mm. and thought well I can either kill myself or I can go on and find absolutely everything interesting and she said that she then went out and read everything and found out the most she could about absolutely everything and she said it made life amazing it made mm. life fascinating which I just thought was uh, which was extraordinary yeah, and what an inspirational thing to you know take away from her life you know what, what to do when you are low yeah well she is somebody who of course we will still be talking yes. about as we are about Judith Carr uh, in, in, in decades possibly in, in <laughs> more than that as we are about Charles Dickens yes um, so this exhibit at the Charles Dickens Museum opened this week uh, about his relationship and friendship with the writer Wilkie Collins um, which I really I, I just adored mainly because um, most of the exhibition looks at letters that the two wrote to each other so even though not many of Wilkie to Charles's exist, Charles to Wilkie's do. And they're just very sweet. There's one where it's like, oh, it's my birthday on Monday, will you come along? And it just, it seems like a really beautiful friendship. It gets a bit sad towards the end because I think he writes something like, oh, I don't see you as often, I don't want to bother you anymore. And obviously he dies about a year later. Um, But then you see a letter from Wilkie to Charles's sister talking about how much he loved the man. It's just, it's a very sweet, wonderful little exhibition, so Mm. I'd highly recommend it. Tell us more about the, 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 the Charles Dickens museum yeah so it's i think in one of his houses um so it's just in uh gosh like sort of chancery lane kind of way um and you know you can imagine a beautiful sort of victorian house um and yeah you can go in like the bedrooms the kitchen <laughs> it's really quite a wonderful experience they now have sort of a, a little bar at the back as well so you know whatever you fancy wow. um but it's a, it's a really wonderful home i, I think i went years ago um on like a school trip um so it's quite nice to be able to take my mum the other week so yeah, yeah. I'd highly recommend well Charles Dickens of course remembered for I mean will be remembered forever really yes. uh, as is Shakespeare and of course we're celebrating the 400th yeah, year, year. <laughs> um, of the first folio being being released have you done much around that uh, we did a tiny bit where folio society I believe had their um edition that they and they had a little sort of launch with that because it was you know extremely beautiful and only however many copies were around. a thousand copies a thousand copies yeah, yeah and that was a um I think it was at the Globe, wasn't it? The launch. Yes, so that was very I, beautiful. I was there too. Oh well, we've crossed paths and not even realised. Um, so yeah, no, a huge year for that. Um, I mean, we on the bookseller, I guess we don't do quite so much on maybe historical anniversaries, but the publishing element of it. So yeah, Folio Society yeah. is definitely something we were focusing. I mean, on. this new edition is absolutely beautiful. In yeah, fact, I'm yeah. working on a Meet the Writers episode where we're talking not only to to the editors of it uh, and the Shakespeare experts that that um, contributed to it. We also spoke to Jeff Doran. Uh, not Jeff, 
um, you know, Anthony Sher's husband, Greg Doran, there you. Yeah. Who, used to, who used to run the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he's he's done this thing where he's gone and visited every first folio around the world, oh, wow. which is so fascinating. And then we're also going to speak to the people who, who, who printed it, who actually yeah. typecast it in the old original way. So that's, I mean, just, just such a such a wonderful and dying art. And then the, the, um, the way it was bound, the, the fabric was created, it yeah. was hand-woven. Uh, and so it's all been produced in this extremely beautiful way. So that's a programme to look forward to <laughs> coming up later. Uh, it's been really lovely to have you uh, in the studio, oh, Sean. Thank you. Uh, so thank you so much for coming. That's Sean Bailey. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer, Mariella Bevan, and our studio engineer, Steph Chungu. Uh, Monocle on Saturday will return next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.